ASI is a listener-supported podcast coming from the Pacific Northwest area of the United States. It is inspired by rock and roll kind of talk radio. Guests and topics on the show are kicked off with what's called bumper promo music. To financially support the artist by purchasing the music, to financially support the podcast, or both, you can do so again at ASI247.org. This is the Gaslight Anthem. As we delve into the place that we don't let most of the world see. A place that is functional, but can be easily neglected. A place that feels like a raw nerve walking into. A place that can be dangerous, the wrong people are let in there. A place that can be very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. This old shack known as the human heart. My guest today, W. Paul Young, W.M. Paul Young. Paul, you and I, uh, we share something together. We both go by our middle name. That's correct. That's my a family is... tradition on my side. Oh, yeah, that's cool. My name's Charles, but I go by Russell. I had red hair when I was a little kid, so. Um, I'm a, from a long line of Williams who all go by their middle names. So. <laughs> Me too. My dad's name was Charles. His dad's name was Charles. I don't know. It was just like a junior thing. I don't know. Well, uh, didn't have to do juniors that way. You just, uh, everybody was a William, but then you got called by your middle name. So that's no, right. Nobody really knew. The first name's the last name. It's an honor thing in a different kind of way. I, absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we're both quirky and out of the box like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the shack, man, uh, you wrote the shack. You are by far, uh, one of the, the most important authors, I believe not just in, in Christian literature, to use that word, but uh, this was a, a very important book. Uh, New York Times bestseller. It wasn't just a New York Times bestseller, but for 49 consecutive weeks, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was number one for 49 consecutive weeks. That's how nuts it was. It was on the list for 200 and some weeks. Wow, yeah. That's never been done before. I have no idea. Since. From from what I've heard, as far as yeah, from what I've heard too. Right, you didn't you didn't have to like pay a guy, or something. No, nothing like that. <laughs> in there, huh? No. Hire a, a company. No, I, made, I made fifteen copies at Office Depot and went back to work. So I this is this was not even on my bucket list. This, <laughs> right. This is totally God's sense of humor. It's got uh, <laughs> it's got little to do with any planning or agenda on my part. You didn't set out to be a best-selling author at all. I didn't even set out to be an author. I, oh. I set out to write a, a Christmas present for my kids. <laughs> that's, that's, what I, 
<laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, you also wrote the book Crossroads. Uh, this was also a, a bestseller. Yeah. Two great stories. I haven't read. I started The Shack. Um, I haven't started Crossroads. I just started The Shack recently. Uh, now, I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons I didn't read The Shack is something my pastor said uh, the church that I was going to for a long time. I've recently um, parted ways with that church. Um, I'm rooting for that church. I haven't, you know, totally left. I haven't found another place that I can really call home yet. Um, I'm kind of in a mourning process, really, a little bit, Paul, from this whole thing at at the Mars Hill Church, a church that I love, and and Pastor Mark, who I I respect, um, had some negative things to say about your book. Uh, back in the day when it came, when it was started to really become a hit back in 08. Um, and that, that's the reason I didn't read it. And that's the reason why a lot of people at Mars Hill didn't read it, sadly. Um, the, the good news is that's the reason a lot of people did read it. <laughs> that's why I picked it up again. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, Mark probably sold, as a single individual, probably sold me more books than almost anybody else just because he banned it. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I've uh, I've had an opportunity to thank him about that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Now I heard that just after that 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 kind of uh, outburst from him that you had a like a meeting I guess set up and yeah. you were going to publicly invite him in to discuss this stuff. Like, hey, I'm not a heretic. Let's talk about you know this. And I don't think it's like a, you didn't sit sit down and write like a theology book. Like, here's how you should think about the Trinity. That's not what the book is about, right? No, but it is uh, orthodox theology. It is orthodox to the core. And, uh, and um, you know, it's just like when you say, Jesus, you know, you wrote this parable. That's fiction, right? It's not theology. Well, it doesn't mean it's not true. And, uh, and so, you know, this, the underlying current of the shack is that this is a true story. It's just not real. It's a parable. And um, so the fact that, you know, he, it, when he first came out with his uh, um, statement against the book, it was pretty obvious that he hadn't read it, and, um, which is true for a lot of people. A lot of people um, who are still upset with the book haven't read it. Um, I'd say that would be in the high 90 percentile of the angry people. Right, and, right. Um, and those are my people. I mean, Mark's coming out of, I mean, he swung from um, one theological position into a pretty strong reformed position. And, um, and in that, I mean, you know, that's where he was coming from. And I know that position because I grew up in it. Right. And uh, that way of thinking about God and about the cross and about atonement and you know, he called me a modalist, which anybody who'd read the book would say, there's no way that Paul's a modalist. You know, how, how could you have three characters of the Trinity in one room talking to each other? <laughs> and, what uh, is a modalist for, uh, for those who are theologically challenged? Oh, it's, it's you know, the, the, the beauty about being an in, in intellectual, which is not what my category is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer. So right. but the, the beauty about any theological system uh, is that you can adapt a whole set of esoteric language that nobody else can understand. And then it becomes a mystery religion. <laughs> and uh, right. as long as you've got these little words in your pocket, you can pull them out and, and bang somebody on the head with them. Modalism is pretty simple. That is um, that you have something that presents itself in different modes. So 
sometimes God presents himself as a father. Sometimes that God presents himself as a son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. But they are three different modes of the same God. They're not three persons. Right, They're right. just three expressions. So I'm a father, I'm a husband, um, and I'm a brother. But those are just different modes of how Paul expresses himself. That's modalism. Right, and right. that was considered heresy right off the get-go. And so um, the attack against me as a modalist is like, no. And, and part of the argument in the early church was you can't have Jesus face-to-face -face with someone in John chapter 1, or you can't have Jesus praying to someone unless they're other than him, Right. which is a violation of modalism. So that's sort of what modalism was. That's something I've had uh, discussions with people over the years. Um, this podcast is listened to all over the globe, and I've I've been grateful enough to be able to speak into the lives. And, and I'm not a theologian, Paul. I didn't even finish. Like, I didn't <laughs> an educated man. But just from what I know about, about God, and I've had discussions with uh, Muslims who were have kind of the same sort. Well, how can Jesus pray to the Father and be the Son? Like, how can God be two like that? And I said, well, we kind of want to put God in a box. And maybe I'm learning from you as I say this, because I've said this before, but we kind of want to put God in a box and say that, well, you know, God isn't constrained by time and space. And I think that's one thing that I've, I've been able to try and get into the heads of some of the, the Muslim folks who, who listen is that, you know, God doesn't have the handcuffs of time and space on, you know, going, I'm constrained by this. Like, what if God can be in time as the son and outside of time as the father were, you know, I mean, I don't, that's a weird theological idea, but that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like we, we try and put God in our box so he'd make better sense for us. I, and I'm saying something um, fundamentally uh, more basic even than that. And that's what you're saying is true. You're talking about imminence and transcendence right, to use right. two big words. But, but what I'm saying is that there are persons making up the oneness of God and very distinct person, because if you only have one God, who distributes himself in three different modes, you have no basis for love or relationship. Right. You don't have, there's no relationship between me as a father and me as a brother. I'm, my fatherness does not have a relationship with my brotherness, right? right? They're just different modes. So if you only have one God, a monad God, a singularity that's indivisible, but just expresses himself in different roles, you don't have a basis for love. There is no other to love. You're just loving yourself just in a different form. But that's not because there's anything reciprocal in that. So this issue of the, the three persons inside the oneness of God is absolutely critical for love and relationship. You can't have it. And, and, and this is Athanasius from 300 AD, a 21-year-old um, North African a uh, black man who kind of saved the early church and stood up and said, this God who is alone does not love by nature. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. So, so in order to get a God who does not love by nature, religion will step in and create a whole system of things that you have to do to trip the love wire. But it can be pulled at any point. 
Yeah, it's like got this idea. Oh, well, God was was lonely, so he made human beings. Like that's not true. That's not true at God all. Is in relationship with himself. Well, not just with himself, with an other. Right. There are three persons, and this even in Genesis chapter one, you have multiple persons within the very nature of God. Elohim. In the beginning, God is a multiple. It's a plural noun. Right. And then it says, "Let us." Then the pronouns are plural. Right, right, right. And, uh, and so you've got something that is way more profound than an indivisible singularity, because that would mean that my capacity for relationship and love is something that God himself does not possess by nature. Right. Right. Yes. And, and, and we're saying no. So we are absolutely for there being one God. But we are also absolutely for that there is an other within God. And as as the illumination of the character and nature of God unfolds right from the very beginning. You're introduced to Elohim, Yahweh, Ruach. And, and, uh, there's this absolutely marvelous verse that gets mistranslated in the English out of the first three chapters of Genesis. And that is, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Ruach is the word for spirit. Right. Right. And it's uh, that's the spirit of God was hovering over the deep ruach and it's feminine. And the, right. and, the and the pronouns are all feminine and the verbs are feminine. And um, and so in this verse, they heard the sound of the Lord, Elohim, God, Yahweh, who you're introduced to in chapter two, walking in the ruach. Right. Right. That's so you, that's a different relationship. That's different. And that's that's a different paradigm that a lot of people in in traditional church and this is what i love about your book and this is what i love about your writing here's something that you said that that is kind of goes into what you're saying now um when you enter into relationship you enter into an unpredictable uncontrollable mystery don't you absolutely (laughs) our relationship with god is like that our relationship with other people is like that you try to love someone i mean that's that's difficult i mean we want it to be i think there's that I've heard about science, you know, it's like there's this two year thing in relationship where where we fall in love and that person's all, you know, crazy or cuckoo over them for a while. And then that kind of fades in us. So there's something that relationship has to be built on something a little deeper than than just um, my genitals get, you know, <laughs> tweaked. Right. Or I, I'm thinking about my thought processes is consumed with this person. It starts it starts to have to move out of us. And one thing I liked about your book, first of all, I wanted to touch on what you were saying about about the, the female presence of God. Um, they're making the shack into a movie, as I understand. Um, That's what I understand. Now, I, I don't know this except for what the media has told us. Right. I just, I looked it up on IMDb. I guess uh, Force Whitaker is directing it. And we've had, we've had God played by... Uh, 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 George Burns, right, and and Morgan Freeman, and now we're we're looking at possibly Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> it's being that's what I hear. Yeah, that's what I hear. So that will that will be really that'll be interesting, man. That's uh, it, you know, it's it. But what I like about your book is, I had a friend of mine who was an ex pastor. He's still a pastor, um, but he went through this process in his recovery, uh, sex addict. Nate Nate Larkin is his name, and he he I remember him saying that. When he got involved in recovery groups, he was kind of angry to the point where, why is this happening in the basement, Paul? 
Like, why is this, why is this heart stuff going on down here in the basement and all this other flash and stuff going on upstairs in the sanctuary? And that's what I like about your book is you really seem to bust through that layer, <laughs> maybe bust through the floorboards a little bit with this story in, in encountering God, because, um, man, I've sat in with people and, and myself, I've sat there. I think the most gracious guys were uh, Dan and Rick up in this little church just north of here in Marysville who were very patient with me because I was angry at God. Um, you're doing this uh, speaking tour from what I understand, uh, where is God when? And that was a big part of my journey, not just my recovery journey, but my journey in, in learning who this God is because the idea that I had of God is as Rocky or someone, right, or Jesus went and got the keys to heaven or, you know, and I have to be a winner like that or um, that God's angry. He's this father or here's here's a picture I had of God, Paul, that, that God was the principal of my high school and he had this belt and he was just ready for me to screw up so we could, you know, I could be invited in and, and beat up on. And that really wasn't, you know, that that that's not, that's so not God, the, the, the religion thing that I had been um shoved down my throat so to speak i don't know but th your book really tends to deal with that the the shack i used that song as we we led in here uh, the house of the rising sun uh the story the shack is, is that you were saying that's pretty appropriate music for for that right for this interview yeah absolutely because uh, the the shack represents the house on the inside right uh, you know, it's the broken place for a lot of us. It's the place where we store all of our addictions and hide our secrets. And, and uh, we don't enter anybody want. We may let them as far as the living room if we've got it set up properly. <laughs> <laughs> but see, here's a point about Nate Larkin's, uh, uh, his little um, expression of anger with regard to the basement. And I understand what he's saying. He's saying, why, why is it in the hidden place? Uh -huh. Well, part of what part of what I know about churches is that upstairs in the sanctuary and everything else is the place of presentation. That's where we're going to put our best foot forward. That's where we uh, use art and everything else. And it's it's all about a presentation. And it's very dualistic. Uh -huh. In the basement is where you've got your your water heater. It's got your your uh, stuff that runs the building that right, is behind right, closed doors <laughs> right right so in a sense there is a, a a level of our humanity that's in the basement that's not available to be seen upstairs so why wouldn't we start in the basement right you know, right if, if we're going to deal with the real stuff it's probably in the basement it's the, probably all the stuff that's broken and rattling around and leaking and and uh, dysfunctional so i I kind of like it that it, it's that you're in the basement and then you're working <laughs> out of the basement. Yes, yes, very it's where, good. It's where most things are broken, and then nothing upstairs works if nothing downstairs works. <laughs> That's true, and it's where the weighty things happen too. You know, you're right. Because if my if my ba if my uh, you know, it's like oh man, it's like this this thing with in my own life. Um, you and I both have been through. Uh, sexual abuse you talk about that pretty openly and, and how that that kind of busts up a person's basement doesn't it 
Like yeah. it's like having my hot water heater go out. This whole thing at Mars Hill Church is like there's a beautiful, really cool presentation, a lot of cool buildings, a lot of awesome uh, musicians. But the but the hot water blew, heater blew up in the basement and there's a mess going on. But, you know, is it that's my own that's my own story um, is is uh, not being able to trust. Um, talk about that a little bit. You're, you're pretty open about that. Uh, going in the fact that you you were sexually abused you grew up a missionary kid um you should have been you know as far as church stuff goes protected um everybody should be protected but a lot of us aren't and, and especially when inside a subculture where the mission becomes all-encompassing and that is the reason for your existence and that's how it was communicated to my parents generation you know you do the work of god god will take care of the kids right and right. um you know, to me, it's bigger than a water heater. To me, it's like are we. Um, I was in insurance for a long time, and I I insured a particular house over in on the other side of Portland. It only happened once that I know of in the Oregon area, but lightning hit that house. I mean, just hit the house. And one of the one of the boys, uh, the sons of the man who I insured, was walking between the bathroom and the kitchen. And if he'd have been grounded, he'd have been instantly killed. But the, the lightning came through the roof, went through all the wiring, blowing off the, the casings of every wire inside the walls of that house. Wow. It, it came out, arc welded a can of hairspray to the sink. It, uh, it went down into the basement and literally created craters around the, the basement, which reversed the charge, took it back up through the roof created another massive hole in the roof, and then it went down the road and blew up two transformers. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they flew people in from all over the Northwest uh, and uh, Mid-America to look at this thing. Because when you looked at the house, it looked fine, right? Right. Looked, from now, the outside. As you started to look closely, you realized that all the sheetrock nails had been pushed out, and they were all out of the walls, um, but every wire in that place was electrified. If there was power there, you touch it, it's exposed. And so the house was condemned and it looked perfectly fine, right? <laughs> because everything on the inside was blown apart. And that's what sexual abuse does. It is a lightning bolt that runs through the house and it literally obliterates its... Uh, availability to be lived in, in any kind of a normal sense, and um, and and that's what I think happens for a lot of us. So now, you know, we're constantly living in fear that we're going to touch something, do something, say something, and life becomes uh, a dangerous place. And it's all about staying safe. And so all of our um, techniques for survival become techniques for being safe. Yeah. Right. right. You talked about that being, uh, you know, the fact that I mess up is it becomes a value statement. Like you, you touched on that a little bit, distinguishing between an observation and, and a value statement to who I am as a person. 
that's yeah. something that I've I've witnessed in, in not just my own life, but in other people. Like I've almost got, I can almost sense it. Like I dig into a person a little bit. I lied about my sexual abuse for most of my life. Um, I had behavior problems as a kid, as a teenager, and 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 they asked me. Like I was invited in. My mom took me to therapy and stuff, and and uh, yeah, they would always ask me, and I would always lie about it because the guy who who did that was good at keeping me quiet. Just had a, a horrible. Um, thing that he would tell me. Basically, what he told me, Paul, was that uh, if anybody knows how how dirty you are, yeah, they know what I know about how how messed up and dirty you are. That no one would love you. Yeah. Um, so it's all shame based, and, yeah. and that, that little statement comes from shame based. That it, it shame destroys your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. And um, what I did is, I, you know, a great illustration for me is when um, when Kim and I were married, I, this is how I would put it. She would say these terrible things to me like, don't don't mix the colors with the whites. Right. <laughs> you know, so she's talking about laundry. She's just telling me the right way to do it. But because I had a performance mentality that was based on not just performance, but perfectionist performance. Anything less than perfection, any any statement that pushed down through my thin layer of perfectionist performance and into my shame caused this inability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. She's making an observation. I hear her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you, right? Because I, I, I can't distinguish. So everything is just propelled by this shame and everything is interpreted by it. And it had a profoundly um, difficult impact on my life. But I didn't even know it. It was just a visceral reaction. So you're around somebody who's got that kind of protective mechanism and a performance mentality like that. Oh, saying anything is like stepping on a, on a minefield. You just don't know if you're going to say this, they're going to blow up, they're going to, you know, dive into a depression they're going to try to take their life i mean it's it's that kind of crazy right when you can't distinguish between a value statement and an observation and it comes from not having a clue who you are not really um which is uh, which is part you you had mentioned earlier the the cycle of infatuation and um and it really is uh, fundamentally uh, based not on love at all, because it's not based on knowing someone. It's based on projecting onto someone the things that that you desire, like unconditional love or those kinds of things. And so you have this very heady response in which you believe that you are being loved the way that you need to be and um, and that this is all reciprocal, but it's not based on knowing the person. That's the two-year cycle, is at some point, you're going to start to know the person. Now, real love is based on knowing. This is the this is why the beauty of God's love is that He knows you. Right. He knows you completely. Can't hide nothing from God. Yeah. There is not. There is no infatuation on God's side. It's not like, oh, I, I didn't know that you were screwed up like that. You yeah. know. And um, no, this is God who is centered on with relentless affection on us, knowing us completely. Right. right? And um, and. Infatuation is very linked to the same kind of cycle that pornography is because it's not about knowing that woman or that guy or whoever you're at that moment focused on in terms of pornography. 
It's not about that person and knowing them. It's about projecting your own need through an imagination. And it's a lot safer. That kind of infatuation is a lot safer than actually knowing because knowing is a two-way process here. Right. And uh, pornography is not. That person, I don't have to take any risk of trust. I'm never going to disappoint them. I've got power over them. And so it becomes a one-sided imagination of a relationship in which no risk of relationship actually takes place. Yeah. It's like a, a relationship sort of with a needle, you know, I mean, or an insert drug of choice. But yeah. But the thing about with pornography and, and sexual addiction or even sexual ethic issues is, is like you're saying, it it takes place in that that place where and I think that's another thing, not just about sexual abuse, but just a traumatic um, past is is we're able to, like you said, project or even us creative types, we can make up our own <laughs> sort of reality. And that works for a little while, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Well, here, and, and a side point. There is no human being who is not a creative type. And this is partly why the proliferation of pornography is so powerful. Right. And everybody is a creative. Everybody can create imaginations that don't exist, that are fear-based or shame-based. Everybody can create an imagination of a relationship where none exists. You know, and, and so we're all creatives. So you know, to, to try to segment uh, a sort of susceptibility into one group is not going to, it's not true. We're all made in the image of, a, of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit who is a creative being. Right. And right. so um, uh, we do this. The issue is, you know, are we functioning out of something that's actually true and real? Or, or is it, what's it based in? And a lot of it's based in our damage, our need, our desire for control, our fear, our shame, our guilt, or whatever, our, our sense of impending condemnation, um, the uh, and, you know, and we're we're addicted to that side of it because we don't want to take the risks. Trust is a way harder, harder thing than you know an accountability group, uh, you know, and uh, trust is a way harder thing than um, somebody give me a list of uh, ways to self-discipline myself into some kind of behavioral modification. And um, so, yeah, and that those things take actual work and risk. Yeah. Trust yeah. us. Yeah. Opening it up and, and, and with other people was tremendously difficult for me, you know, but I had to finally break. I had to finally get to that point where, you know, like like you talk about with the, with the shack metaphor where you, you know, this shiny facade just kind of talk about that a little bit. You, you, you talked about where it came down like you had this facade that seemed to work and, and, and people saw it and thought, Oh, well that's Paul. That's great. But that, that whole thing came crashing down. Yeah. And you had a kind of bomb go off in your life. Yeah, Facades are temporary and they work temporarily and they are made with some of the materials that your real soul is made of. They're not just totally not expressions of you. And that's what makes them even more insidious is that what you did is you take, you know, pieces of wood from your own shack and you drag them a hundred yards outside in front of your shack where you don't want anybody to ever come and you set them up and create a, you know, quarter inch piece of plywood that you can paint as fast as you can pick up people's expectations. So you're constantly a different thing for different people. Right. And, and you're living from the outside in and, um, social, social. Yeah. So when the facade goes down, 
it, it feels because you that's where your investment is, is in the facade. Your investment is not in the shack because you, you think that's a total loss and you think God hates that place. You hate that place. You think anybody that finds out about that place will hate that place. And you think that's justifiable. So you create not because you're trying to be duplicitous. You're trying to do the righteous thing. You're trying to do the holy thing. You're trying to do the uh, living right thing. So you create the facade to try to build something that looks like what you're hoping to be like. And it's and it has chunks and pieces of who you are. But now it becomes blended into this imagination, not something that's actually real. It's just a facade. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as soon as it starts to fall apart, which it always does, because it's hiding the shack where you have all your addictions, which keep going. You know, it's not like... You, your shack's your own soul, and you're not going to be able to disassociate yourself so far from your own soul that those things still don't affect you. Um, and when the facade starts coming down, you either have a choice. You either keep building it again fast as, and spin your stories and lie or do what you have to do to cover up, or you move, you leave. You go somewhere else and justify your, your leaving. You can say God told you to go somewhere else or... Uh, this relationship just didn't work or whatever you want to tell yourself in order to go start again. And all you'll do again is plop your shack down somewhere, go outside and build another facade, start from scratch. And hopefully this time you can do it better and perfectly. The old saying in recovery, like wherever you go, there you there are. You are. <laughs> it's, 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 be, it's very true. And the facade's got to come down because it's not true. It's not who you are. No. And and in that process, when it comes down, you tend to question everything about even the pieces of wood that were part of you get annihilated in that process until you get to walk through it at a point and begin to recover the pieces of wood that are actually part of who you are. But initially, you're so devastated by the sense that this all is fake, that the whole thing's fake, you know, that uh, you, you don't even see some of the things that were actually good the whole time. Um, and and actually empowered some of your ability to hide. <laughs> right. Very, very true. That uh, incremental process of, of, of healing, you know, is it, 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 we can delay it by, like you said, by building a new facade or moving, you know, um, but but it, it's always I mean God God's love for us is kind of it's kind of after us like that. Is that something? I mean, talk to me a little bit about Crossroads. So you went from from the shack to to later on writing this this book Crossroads. Um, do you speak to some of that in there? Sure. Yeah, a lot actually because um, when I write, I'm not trying to write with an agenda to change somebody's mind. I'm not. I'm writing to explore a question and just allow that question to hang out there and create space by its presence. Right. And that way, you know, people can hear for themselves. Uh, I trust the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And, um, and so the question that I'm pursuing in Crossroads is, what, in the shack, McKenzie's a nice guy. What if you've got a, a guy who's a successful businessman and got there, he's a hider, he's created his facade, and it's become workable for him. Uh, as a result, he's become successful, but he's a despicable human being. Relationally, he's got devastation in his wake. 
and he's created a system of self-protection uh -huh. um, because he doesn't, he doesn't want relationship. It's too dangerous for him. And so he's got a whole system of protecting himself against it. And as a result, uh, he has deteriorated as a human being. How, how does grace and transformation get inside the world of someone who doesn't want it and someone who doesn't want relationship, which is really the crucible in which transformation happens because we're designed for relationship. And the more we move away from relationship, the more we're not exposed to that crucible, you know, and so he's got his own internal fortresses. So how does grace and change and transformation reach in a respectful way past those barriers and into the human heart? And that's, the, that's what I'm exploring there. So, um, it's just an ex the story is an example of that journey in one person's life that says, you know, Crossroads then becomes a metaphor for running into those things that give us an opportunity to, to reevaluate, reassess, uh, stop. You know, we're barreling down through the intersections. And at some point, we begin to realize this isn't working, right. you know. And, um, and so at what point does that happen? And for, I think for some people, it happens in this space between life and death. I don't know. I don't know how all that works out, but you know, it's just, it's fiction. So I get to explore stuff. <laughs> it's cool. And, yeah. yeah. So Crossroads is like that. I got a question for you. Uh -huh. Why do you think it's so fundamentally necessary for this process to involve a community of people, other human beings? You know, why can't God just heal us without anybody else finding out about it? Right. Right. It's uh, for me, I, I've explored this. And for me, I think it's that that we're made in God's image. And like you said at the beginning of this interview, God doesn't exist in monoism. Right. Like God is three and we're we're kind of one like we're born here. That's one thing that I used to struggle with, Paul, on my own. And just even as a kid, just laying there in bed at night going, um, why did I have to be born by, behind this set of eyes? Right. Like I'm born behind this set of eyes. I'm not, you know, just just exploring stuff like that. I think that, you know, when our when the wheels come off, something Donald Miller said about about story, he said in every story, you have a character that that um, that wants something and that, and that is after this something that he wants. Right. Uh, but but, yeah, you you kind of explore a different aspect to that like it may be some so for some of us we don't want something as much as we get to the end of something <laughs> you know and if we i think we finally get to the end of ourselves like I, I was i was talking to some friends a long time ago about the the midlife crisis you know and it's like i think a lot of guys especially men uh we have our box and then we get to a certain point when that thing just starts leaking you know and then it's a I don't know, a Corvette and, and a divorce. And I, I, you know, I don't know what it is, what, what that looks like for other people, alcoholism or, you know, but it, some of that, you know, does that make sense? Like maybe God is, is, is pushing us towards being more like him. Right. And in relationship. Yeah. And you can, you can see, and going back to our conversation about modalism, if I'm just a father and a, and a son and a brother, a husband, 
if I'm just different modes and there's no relational integrity between those, then then the whole point, if God's like that, then I should be like that. Then it's I'm supposed to be trying to be the best brother I can be and the best, but it's got nothing to do with relationship, right? Right. I'm just, right. I'm just trying to perform as the best brother. So when God is, you know, in the in the son role, he's just trying to be the best son. But it's, there's no relationship there. And I think that's the, the falseness of modalism, that we're not talking about that. So because there is other-centered self-giving love, and the son never becomes the father, and the father never becomes the spirit, that's the beauty, that oneness is a celebration of the other. So we're created inside that kind of reality, not a modalistic reality, but a relational one. Relationship. And that... That is a fundamental reason, I think, why this healing process requires the other. Right. Because it's designed that way. God, this is a God who has never done anything alone. Yeah. Ever. 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 Right? Even invented time not alone. No. <laughs> right. and, and nothing was created alone. Yeah. Nothing has been experienced alone. Right? right. And so aloneness is not... Part. Oneness, yes. But oneness is very different than aloneness. And, um, and oneness, um, aloneness, the, the dark side of that is loneliness where you think you are alone, right? And that's contrary to the relational reality in which we are created and exist. Right. And that, that darkness is a terrible darkness. That's what uh, Mother Teresa called you know, the great sickness of the American West was loneliness right. because they cut themselves off from real relationship because we're designed and we're created inside and for and by relationships. W. Paul Young, humbled and honored to interview this man. This is part one that I'm concluding right here of the interview. It actually went pretty long. He was gracious enough to spend that much time with me and uh, with the listeners of this podcast. And for that, I am very grateful. Um, next week, I will have the rest of this uh, interview and conclude with part two subscribe hit the subscribe button on whatever device or platform you're listening whether it's iTunes Stitcher Radio tune in um, you don't want to miss it some good rich tasty morsels of thought and hopefully as you can hear it's not just thought provoking mental masturbation but heart level messages that make an impact not just on the mind, but on the heart and soul. If you'd like to see the ripple effect continue, I pray that you would consider a donation as a way to give some financial attention to the message known as the ASI podcast to keep it surviving and thriving in this day and age when its message is so very needed. Keep this podcast as well as myself in your prayers, if you would, as I feel some days like I have picked a fight with the devil himself. 
And maybe that's true. But by the grace of God, it keeps moving forward. So thanks again. Leave you with some thrice. And until next time, bye. Look around and you see that it's time